0: Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantillibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Alyssa Brandt, a freelance writer and contributing editor at Cincinnati Magazine, Hello. Mary Curran Hackett, a writer of novels including Proof of Heaven and Proof of Angels. And P. G. Sittenfeld, Curtis Sittenfeld's little brother and Cincinnati. The most important <laughs> title <today. laughs> And Cincinnati City Councilman. And I'm Abby Moran, a teacher and Mercantile Library board member. Today we are discussing Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld, who will be appearing at the Mercantile Library for a sold-out event quite soon. Here's a warning, there will be spoilers discussed today, so proceed at your own discretion. So Eligible is an update of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Curtis Sittenfeld in Eligible brings the Bennett sisters forward into the 2010s, and she brings them to Cincinnati. So the book is just filled with references Um, to beloved Cincinnati landmarks, and there are some some tweaks at Cincinnati along the way too. Uh, Jane and Lizzie are a little bit older in this this updated Pride and Prejudice. They're they're nearing 40, and uh, Mary, Lydia, and Kitty have all been living at home in Hyde Park on Grandin Road. And while Jane and Lizzie have been in New York for the last you know, almost a couple of decades, I think. Mm-hmm. And Jane's a yoga instructor, Lizzie is a magazine writer, and they've come home to Cincinnati because their dad has had a heart attack. And uh, they, they have to deal with the Bennetts, the, the elder Bennetts, the parents. The mother has a shopping addiction and an intense desire to marry off at least one of her daughters. And uh, the father, Mr. Bennett, has this heart issue, but he also has um, some major financial concerns um, that he has been ignoring. And their house is, is also um, almost a character in the novel itself. It's, uh, uh, it's crumbling uh, in certain ways. There's a lot of deferred maintenance, um, and they need to sell it. It's double mortgaged, and that becomes a, a conflict early on. And they have no health insurance. They, they have, have no health insurance. insurance. They need Obamacare. Right. Yeah, they, they need yeah. Obamacare, but Mr. Bennett's a Republican. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't quite gotten around to that. So uh, I have to tell you that my first... Um, my first knowledge that this book was in the works was when um, Curtis started asking on Twitter for kind of Cincinnati recommendations. She had some kind of question about um, you know where someone would go on a date in Cincinnati, and I'm sure that PG was like on vacation or something because you were probably her number one source yeah, for those her, things. I told her, ask the Twitter yeah. scale, the better
1: place. <laughs> but to... but I then I there was it. an
0: article, mm-hmm. I think maybe on Cincinnati.com, mm-hmm. that this novel was in the works, and I was so excited. I told Mike, my husband, that I had a very productive wishing well because. This this is like everything that I love happening at once. I was so, so, so thrilled. And, um, and Curtis, if you have a list of potential new friends or members for your Jane Austen book club, I'm really interested. I, I would really oh, love there. to be on it. So anyway, I was really, really excited. But then when I bought my copy of the book last week at Joseph Beth Booksellers, which is name checked also in the novel, I realized yes. it was kind of and like- And so is the Merc. Uh, yeah. Um, I was worried about starting. Because I was worried that I wouldn't like it, and there were, I really, really, really wanted to like it. And then, I, but I waited a couple days to start. And once I got going, I just loved it. And I was so relieved that she did such a delightful, wonderful job with this book. In mm-hmm. my
2: opinion. So, what did the rest of you think? I found it incredibly enjoyable. I, I don't know if it's easier to read as a non-Jane Austen practitioner or as probably it's easier as a non-Jane Austen practitioner. I've heard from one friend who loves Austen. She said, I think I just have to set aside everything I know and love about Austen and just read this book for its own sake, which I think you should do for any book. Um, is your friend a fan of Jane Austen she or is a scholar? A, She's of, not a scholar. I She's just a fan. She's yes. just a fan. And I think I'm maybe not as big a fan of Jane Austen, but I still love the book. And it maybe it was, I didn't have any of that sort of hovering over mm-hmm. it like it needs to be something or measure up. It was mm-hmm. just a fun read and who doesn't like to like trace her running route to see if she, you know, have I walked that route or so yeah, yeah it's a fun read. What do I you think, Mary? love Jane
3: Austen and I thought she did such an amazing job from a, like a relative perspective in terms of like the spinsterhood would be 38 and 40. It wouldn't be, you know, late (laughs) twenties and all of the, um, the bodiness and scatological stuff. It was in Jane Austen. It was in Shakespeare, uh, Chaucer. It was in all of those books that they, relative to their time. So I felt like the vulgarity and all the like rawness and realness of it. That was, Uh that's our life right now. Mm -hmm. And that's what the language we speak and that's how we talk. And so it was completely relative and on par. Um, I liked the things that she did to it because I am an, totally um, an austenite and that I know like she divided Wickham into Wick, Jasper, uh-huh. and um, Ham, which was delightful because how else are you going to make elopement seem scandalous in the present day? like nothing scandalous in 2016, I don't think. so um, unless you know. Scandal's your thing, but like, there's nothing so like right. crazy that your right. parents would be like. Our bar is so, so high, high right. for scandal, and for especially the Bennets who are like, what a hot mess they are. Like, what could they possibly be scandalized by? So having Ham's situation, which I don't know, can I say it? Yeah, oh yeah. You can oh, say he's it. trans. He's a trans transgender. So he's a he was a girl. He's a he. Um, so to Lydia, he is a he. But apparently, her elopement to someone who wasn't always a he is quite scandalous. Well, and I Bennets. love it
0: that the Bennett parents have never really encountered the concept of transgender before they, <laughs> they before to explain uh, it. Yeah, I they mean, they're explaining the basics. It's so cringeworthy. So the, I thought she did a really good job like, bringing those cringeworthy moments yeah. up to the present. Because Lydia and Kitty, honestly, when we were, they were playing charades it in would. an early scene, and they're so crass, and I mean, I just wanted to die. It was so... Yeah. I Embarrassing. Was so embarrassed, but that's actually, like, a good update. For oh yeah, what... so modern. I mean, you yeah. could imagine any 18-year-old doing right. just those things. Because
3: the drawing room scenes yeah. in Pride
0: and Prejudice...
3: Those are cringeworthy back Those are, then. They don't
0: seem that cringeworthy now because somebody's playing a harpsichord and it doesn't seem like yep. it would be, like mm-hmm. what could possibly be cringeworthy about that? But I agree, Mary. I, and I am a huge fan of Pride and Prejudice. It's my palate-cleansing novel, so yeah. I've read it probably, <laughs> like when I need a good read, I don't know how many Fitz times. Fitzwilliam is my I've man. read it, it yeah, <laughs> it I've read so it yeah. many, many times. And then that BBC, Colin yeah. Firth, um, I mean, not, I know that he's not the only person in it. I was it, waiting but
3: for a scene for him to come yeah, rising right,
0: out of the right, water right, right. like I've a watched white that shirt, it so didn't happen. Yeah, but Mike was, goes on a business trip, and then yeah. like, that's what I watch.
3: But I so, thought Kathy was another good um, yes. switch up, too, from the old. I Lady remember, Catherine de is
0: transformed into this uh, feminist author, Kathy de Bourgh, and I was kept waiting for her to be Darcy's aunt, but she dropped that. She did, that and that she time. dropped
3: that she was kind of bitchy. She, right, she's she really was bitchy really, and and Prejudice. She was a voice of reason, and I uh-huh. liked how it kind of helped her see Darcy um, in a new light. Yeah, I loved so that I too. liked that switch, the Wickham, and Jasper Wick, that he was the scandal that he oh, was involved in. Oh, the Jasper Wick character was just delicious. Yeah, yeah. what a
0: jerk. So PG, scandal. when did you first read the book?
1: Uh, the Curtis Sittenfeld version? Yes, well, the Curtis... So, so-, <laughs> so when when Curtis first introduced this concept to me, that this, the Jane Austen project was going to um, sort of, you know, content- contemporary writers and saying you know, we want to bring modern versions of each of Jane Austen's novels to life. We want you to do Pride and Prejudice. I think I reminded her of that iconic presidential debate moment between Dan Quayle and Lloyd Benson of, you know, Senator, you know, I knew Jack Kennedy. (laughs) I served with Jack Kennedy. You're no Jack Kennedy. So my line to Curtis was, you know, I've read Jane Austen. I took a course on Jane Austen. Curtis, you're no Jane Austen. No
3: pressure. to,
1: to, To your point, though, of being sort of afraid you wouldn't like it, I feel like trying to rewrite Jane Austen is like my being like I'm going to go and do a Michael Jordan impression on the basketball court. Right, like, right. You only set yourself up to fail. But the thing, I and I, I not just because I'm Curtis's little brother. You know, I've loved two of her books, and two of them I thought have been like, eh, okay. You know, I mean, good enough to read, but not home runs. I thought this was a terrific book, and I think one thing she did really well was for somebody that's never heard of Jane Austen, that's never read Jane yes. Austen, it's still a fun read. It still feels you know fast paced and sort of embodies. The world we live in now, but for Austinites, and actually I did take a course on Jane Austen in college. I love Pride and Prejudice. I'm sort of showing my inner feminist here. Um, No, I think she's (laughs) there's a reason she stood the test of time. I do think there are a lot of ways in which she sort of shows fidelity to the original, to people Mm -hmm. that appreciate that. So I I thought it was great.
3: Um, It made me look at Pride and Prejudice again with new new eyes. I thought in, in defense, I think you're Sister is the Michael Jordan of our <laughs> she's like. Well, no, sure she appreciate that prep. She's got a laser sharp focus, like a Jane Austen take um, on the world. Like she could take down those conversations or like the little like nuances of behaviors. Um, I was a little shocked. It took her to page two hundred to bring up. You know, where'd you go to high school in Cincinnati? I thought that was going to be on page two because that is the the thing. But mm-hmm. she was. I mean, she was on. The whole time about every little nuance. I well, thought it was when great. She,
1: yeah. I actually The only reason I know this because I just heard her saying it on, on Diane Reem's show last week. I think she looked at, ev- broke down every single one of the chapters in the original Pride and Prejudice, and then broke down every single one of the chapters in this. So she had the structure of 61 um, different chapters before she started, you know, filling in the words and the content. So one thing for for those that, that haven't read it yet, and we hope we're piquing people's interest. I think one good example is you know, in the original, so Bingley comes to town, and because it's a small town and it's of that era, everybody immediately knows, okay, somebody that's handsome and rich has come to town, and of course he's going to be looking for a wife. So Curtis said, how would you recreate that in the year 2013 in Cincinnati? So she uses this modern device of this guy that just appeared on the equivalent. It's called Eligible in the book but then appeared on you know, the equivalent of The Bachelor in the show. And I thought that was a very clever way of saying, okay, that is how somebody could come to a place like Cincinnati and have everyone know, okay, this guy's single, we know he's rich because he was on The Bachelor. So I thought there were very clever ways of, of, of making it modern.
3: That was a, I really love the way device. she did that. And so um, did
2: I. I love that, I think this came up on that Diane Rehm segment too, where very early on, I mean in my copy it's page four, where Mrs. Bennett is already talking about Chip (laughs) like he's familiar and Mr. Bennett saying, you're talking about this stranger and you're gonna wanna marry off our daughters to the stranger and she says, I'd scarcely say stranger, he's in the ER at Christ Hospital which means Dick Lucas must know him. I thought that pretty much summed up why Cincinnati was a really good choice to set this book in because it is has a small town feel for the size city that it is, and everyone is just, not even six degrees of separation, it's more like three degrees of separation here, so. We all know each
3: other, or know of each other, or follow each other on Facebook. Yes,
2: and (laughs) she, uh, I think she also told Diane um, that she was given free reign, she was given no guidelines or restrictions Mm -hmm. by the Austin Project people, there's no, Official estate of Austin that says what you can and cannot do with her work, and so she just ran with it. I think one of the
1: handy things there is that because the book is old enough, this isn't mm-hmm. like saying you want to do a like a new Star Wars, yeah. where of course you know copyright well, and this and that. She, you, you get free range, in them.
3: Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no It's true. Yeah, or
2: you don't have to to worry
3: about the copyright, but.
2: right? And the timing is so good um, because there's also uh, I don't know when this movie will come to Cincinnati, but. Whit Stillman, who you may remember as directing Barcelona and um, all those great, Metropolitan, he's got a new movie, his first in quite a while, coming out. It's called Love and Friendship, and it's based on a more obscure Austin work called Lady Susan, which I had never even heard of. Um, And it's got Chloe Sevigny and Kate Beckinsale. So it's like the timing for this book is great because it's in this little froth of renewed...
3: Right. What's the
2: name of the of the movie? The movie is called Love and Friendship. Love and Friendship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Well, she's bringing yeah. it to a
3: whole new generation of people. Like Helen Fielding brought Bridget, brought you know, Darcy and the whole story to us in the '90s. Um, I was in college, and I think I can't remember if I read Austin first or Bridget Jones's Diary, but I know they came in pairs, like in how we read mm-hmm. it and experienced it and watched the TV shows. In the dorm rooms, and I feel like there's a whole new generation of women that can relate to this and Mm -hmm. enjoy it on all different levels from the young age group um, to the older group.
0: So how did you, as the Sittenfeld sibling that lives in Cincinnati, PG, how did you think she did with the Cincinnati
3: references?
1: Well, you, you started by mentioning sort of her asking the Twitter sphere of saying, okay, if I'm a 31-year-old woman who does yoga and I want to go get <laughs> coffee afterwards, where would I go? And I'd be like, you know, maybe ask a, a 31-year-old woman who does yoga, <laughs> Curtis, where, which I think was when I directed her to Twitter. The only thing, and obviously, you know, I, I consider part of my duty to be a good cheerleader for the city of Cincinnati. The only thing I didn't like is Curtis putting, uh, as the sort of st- quote at the beginning of the novel, that thing attributed to Mark Twain, when the mm-hmm. world ends, I want to be in Cincinnati because everything happens 20 years later there, which works for the sort of social dynamic of Austin, but I feel like doesn't reflect that Cincinnati is having this sort of renaissance and we're becoming a more progressive, forward-looking city yes. uh-huh. in a lot of ways. But in general, look, I, I thought, you know, Cincinnati as sort of a character. I thought it was really fun. Uh, Her goal is always to make sure that if somebody is incredibly, you know, 99% of the people that read this book won't live in Cincinnati, won't be familiar with Cincinnati, but she wants the 1% that are to never be distracted of saying, so, you know, at one point, I think she had... Um, uh, the, the the two older sisters getting uh, a cocktail at maybe like Don Pablo's, and I was like, no, I think they'd be getting it someplace else. Just so so it is so it doesn't distract you, you know, along the way of saying that's not realistic. Right. right. I, in general, I thought it was I thought it was fun that I know, I'm glad to have an iconic uh, tale brought to mm-hmm. our beloved hometown.
0: Did she? Um,
1: and did we he should he also talk- say it's oh. very obviously. Uh, East side. I mean, it's uh-huh. more e- sort of Hyde Park, Park. Indian Hillish in its sort of the world yes. it inhabits. Well, and
3: that's that's Austenesque. is she stayed in her right. um, the Derbyshire-like kind of uh-huh. high society, as high as you get. Well, right. she d- she does venture out to Terrace Park when the at some certain point for the party. There's like the <laughs> I just laugh. Not Terrace Park, Indian <laughs> Hill. In Indian Hill. Right. Yeah. Indian Hill. Sorry, I get them confused. But so she she did show that. But Jane Austen never gave the insights to um, the. For us who live out in like Mount Washington or you know the lower class people, <laughs> I love. <laughs> you know? I love that
0: her her run took her to Christ Hospital. Yeah, from Hyde Park to yes. Christ Hospital, like that's that's quite a run. I kept and, and imagining
3: and I was curious. like ninety degree heat in the summer. I was like, why didn't that love struggle? Really that was, a struggle. Yes, it that was real. I was thought
2: she got so much of it right. Although I did when I when I interviewed her for my Cincinnati Magazine piece, I did nitpick her on the maybe you can speak to this PG, the 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 cracker crushing. I've lived here. I'm not a native Cincinnatian. Oh, yeah. I'm, I've lived here 12 years though. I've never seen anybody crush their oyster crackers on top of their so, skyline. Saw you say, so I just thought you, I'm you so said. So I'm so curious about a, that. Is that a, is this a Cincinnati trait?
1: thing or a Sittenfeld <laughs> thing? That's definitely a Cincinnati. Thing. I think everyone crushes their I oyster don't. crackers on top of chili. No. No. Then this is a revelatory <laughs> podcast got for me. Three, because you've got
0: three non-native uh, Cincinnatians yeah. here with you, but we've all lived here for over a decade, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I don't. I don't eat skyline. Sorry. I eat the Greek salad there though, but um, yeah. Do you crush your crackers on the Greek salad? No. <laughs> Do you <laughs> snack on some crackers before they bring you? Oh, your I food? bring the. I snack. Uh, everybody snacks on. But the this crackers. to me is yes. part of what one of the like <laughs> delicious parts of yeah, setting in Cincinnati totally. of having yes. you know
1: two of the most famous characters in all of literature, oh. you know Lizzie and Darcy, you know eating a skyline, chip, eating a three-way at Skyline, and then you know going yes. to have hate sex or whatever yes. Yes. Uh, yes. for yes. the modern world. Yes. Yeah.
3: I yes. love how he, that humanized him was that he ate Skyline, that he would have yes. the seven-dollar lunch. Yeah, he was not like or even yeah, it just it seemed I, real. What I love it? like the updated or zips. They went to zips for burgers and how about yours? when he loads his own
0: dishwasher yeah. at his like at his big at the pool house, the guest house at his big, you know, fancy estate in Appleton. Right. You know, like that that's the twenty thirteen version or the twenty sixteen version of of the kind of him being willing to roll up his sleeves yeah. and take mm-hmm. part. <laughs> you know, in Pride and Prejudice, the housekeeper. Who gives them the tour of Pemberley has all these good things to say about about Darcy. Do you remember that yep. scene? And then and then Darcy takes Jane's or, um, Lizzie's uncle out to the fishing. Pond, right? And he kind of he kind of gets in there with the action and shows that he's like a you know man. more of a man of the people. So, mm-hmm. He so mans
3: the grill in this. Yeah, here he, he it? mans the, the grill. grill. <laughs> he may
0: not have prepped the meat, but he, he, mans, he mans the, grill, the grill, grill, and then he loads the dishwasher. So yeah.
1: one, one, one question for you all. I feel like part of one of the you know. Uh, awesome parts about the, of Jane Austen's *Pride and Prejudice* is the evolution of our understanding of Darcy, and he goes from seeming, you know, cold and aloof and wretched to, you know, this incredibly likable, lovable character. Did you think knowing that plot line going into this, like, were you, did did um, her making Darcy not likable from the outset seem plausible, or you kind of knew, well, we're gonna like this guy eventually anyway, so it, it, it didn't quite work?
3: Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. Actually, I thought. Um, Not that
1: you knew, actually, that she was going to him yeah, I, I have to make it likable. Yeah, I didn't have
3: to make it likable. I thought it was brilliant, brilliantly executed, that interaction, hearing, because it seemed real, real like you would be overhearing a conversation, mm-hmm. and it can be very, very easily misconstrued that he's either ragging on it or you just aren't getting the full con- con- context. Mm-hmm. And um I had this sense as a reader, like, oh, she's not hearing the whole thing. She's kind of set in her ways and already like on her, you know, defenses. So it was just it was yeah. a weird experience, experience reading the
1: book and being like, I know I'm gonna end up liking Darcy, so I kind of liked him from right. the outset, even mm-hmm. when he's being, you know, but adenic. everybody
3: likes Darcy from the outset because he's Colin Firth, like in the movie. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> you're so like you're just oh, just oh, so I don't great. know. That's
0: one criticism though of of Pride and Prejudice is that um Darcy's never sufficiently developed um that it is not plausible that it, or um, or that there's, it's not even evident that Lizzie has made a good match, yeah. other than like the financially that he isn't really. Um, He's a stick a well in the rendered, mud. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and he, you know, that he he doesn't show that much generosity of spirit. That, I mean, that's a criticism. I, you know, of course, I still, he does in this I stuff. still love Pride she, and Prejudice, but here, I mean, she actually yeah. maybe. He's Could very well rounded. Do you think maybe she does a better job?
3: Absolutely of developing Darcy I think than Dar- Jane. How does. dare you! Oh <laughs> yes. my goodness. I think Darcy is definitely much more robust, um, just likable, um, equal. Yes. In, in task and like banter to um, Lizzie, like with the smart comebacks and the witticisms, and um, like she's met her match. I don't know. I liked that. I did, too. Yeah,
2: I thought she did a very good job of their subsequent awkward encounters throughout the book. <laughs> me, too. That she, they just seemed very modern and very fresh, and I thought she did a good job. And I particularly also like the awkwardness of her relationship with Jasper. I thought that, that rang very true. Her modern portrayal of that rang very true for mm-hmm. me. I feel like we all probably know somebody who has either carried a torch for way too long or had that relationship that started and stopped and started and stopped and never knew what was happening. I just, I thought that rang very true. Her I
0: descriptions of Jasper were just so <laughs> delicious too. And that's one of the things I like about reading Austen is that sometimes she'll just nail those minor characters. And I loved that page where she said, um, she was talking about his Stanford ring that he always wore, yeah. and that she doesn't like jewelry on men, and that but she was kind of relieved um, relieved when she identified it. Um, indeed, Jasper's sole flaw in Liz's opinion, apart from his girlfriend, was that he wore a gold ring from Stanford University, his alma mater. Liz did not care for either jewelry on men or academic ostentatiousness. But she actually was glad to have identified the one thing about Jasper she'd changed because it was similar to realizing what you'd forgotten to take on a trip. And if it was only perfume, as opposed to your driver's license, you were relieved. <laughs> I just loved that. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that was one of the delightful parts of reading this book. Um, just the, you know, She had those little, those little observations and lines um, you know, on, on nearly every page. In, in that um, New York Times review by Sarah Lyle, Lyle, is that how she says her name? She says um, that Curtis is the one you want to leave the party with so she can explain what really happened. Mm-hmm.
1: She's wanted, a good gossip. When uh, you're
0: yeah, I wanted a to party. know, PG. Yeah. So, like, does this, is, is, has that been her role in your family? Is to kind of observe. No, we, we all dish it out. You all do, yeah, I will yeah. say,
1: it is fun leaving a party with, you know, any member of the Sittenfeld family. I know this probably makes it sound like, what do they say? Yeah. <laughs> right, although, the one thing about this book, so Curtis's other books, my, my two favorite of her other four are Prep, Her First, and American Wife. And I feel like one thing she does almost as well as anybody, and that Austin is also sort of the master of, is this sort of, you know, the, these interior monologue Mm -hmm. insights into the human mind the human condition and i actually thought there was much less of that and to me this book is like it's fast and it's snappy and it's sort of plot driven Mm -hmm. but the sort of you know time spent inside one character's mind feeling their angst and their emotions there's less of that And in a weird way i actually think that that recipe might cause this book to sell more because maybe more people are looking for just a fast-paced fun read but yeah. I, and I told Curtis that yeah. the first time I was saying before we, we started this podcast I'm of the four of us by far the rustiest on this book cuz I read it about a year ago and I think the final version changed like 10 or 15% yeah. but my my main reaction to Curtis my only gripe was like I want more of that sort of you know interior emotionality but not that—not that it's not still a good book. But that's the one mm-hmm. thing I thought I could have had more of.
0: I heard her in an interview say that she tends to be kind of dark. I think I don't know if that's exactly the word she used. Maybe it was bleak. That like the, her other books are, uh, she would yeah. say, so are bleaker than like this because it's, it's just such a different structure and such a different inspiration material. It it's
3: lighter to her. And it's mm-hmm. like the content di- dictates the form in the sense that you have these shallow characters and this shallow kind of story well, and, and surface. So so you would like, like, say, set. you would kind of stay in that milieu. You would stay where the conversation is. And actually it's more revelatory. Like, I loved when the sister said to um, Lizzie, Jane said to Lizzie, well, he was just being Jasper. Yeah. and Because she's apologizing for this guy. And she was like, no, he's just being He's him. just being and himself. It. And when you hear that, you're like, you don't need to know what's going on in her head because we've all been there. We're like, uh, you're right. I've, had he, lo- yeah.
1: I've had a lot of people say to me over time like reading prep made me feel so awkward. I've heard people yeah. say that just because the, the sort of you know protagonist or heroine um, Lee Fiora is an incredibly awkward person Th- I, there are some maybe sort of cringy moments or some awkward moments but not really. I, I feel like for the mm-hmm. most part you know, it's one funny humorous scene after yeah. another. Yeah. Obviously you're waiting for this love story to unfold but I didn't think it was a particularly awkward or angsty book at all which no. is a departure for oh, yeah. Curtis
3: no, no. It was satisfying. Like, every time... It was, it was satisfying. Like, it was satisfying. Yeah. like, I felt at the end, I was like, good. Everybody got their due. It was good. Well,
2: well I'm Mary. just sort kind of curious what other people think of the Mrs. Bennett character. For me, <laughs> she was the, the one character that I felt like did not translate to modernity as maybe as well as the others. And not that I don't <laughs> think people like Mrs. Bennett still exist. They do. But just every single... Sometimes I found her almost a little irredeemable. Like, there's got to be some way to get some sympathy for her. But, But like, every box, bigot, racist, you know, I thought she was kind of unredeemable, and I kind of
3: liked it that way. Okay. I really liked that she was just so vapid and um, out of touch because. I really hope there's somebody out there like that who's reading it, and well, they'll never know. They that it's won't, them. yeah. Th- those people are probably yeah. They're not, like not, they're but too it's busy just, to read. I, read I it. love that yeah, line too. The she, one guy she
0: goes on a <laughs> date with is like too busy to read.
1: She like. is so vapid and so shallow, and I, I agree mostly irredeemable. But I also think she was necessary yeah. to create attention for these, you know. Modern women where heaven forbid, you know, spinsterhood is approaching 40 years old. Like, you know, so much of what's wrong with our society. But to have this old-fashioned, out-of-date sort of mother character oh, yeah. pushing these, you know, societal norms that for, you know, it's a good thing we've mostly shed – um, so, yeah I, I I agree she's not there's not much to redeem her <laughs> but
0: when you go back to Pride and Prejudice, I mean, the original Mrs. Bennett is so just so dreadful, yeah, and really it's it's so remarkable that Jane and Lizzie are as good as they are mm-hmm. because Mrs. Bennett is so awful, and then the fact that like that um Darcy well and here you know Darcy goes to lunch with the Bennets and how, and counsels them through the whole you know transgender issue um and that is just that makes him that much more fantastic yes, i think because I he's so willing too. to go sit at tellers and talk them through that mm-hmm. issue i loved she i loved her wall. description of um of um, of mrs bennett's kind of um uh her race, her racism, her racism. Yeah. Well, uh, it's on page 49 in my copy, while not an overt anti-Semite, Mrs. Bennett was prone to making declarations about almost all religious and ethnic minorities that were often uncomfortable for her listeners. Jews are very fond of dried fruit, she told Liz, <laughs> on more than one occasion. I just, I love that because I
3: know that person, yeah, you know, so, and I feel like I that's do. so, so I, funny and, and, so and so true. And I thought it was hysterical, oh. but showed some evolution and it was like she was going to go halfway to meet that Mrs. Bennett has evolved a little bit. Like she did sell the house. Yeah. And yeah, they yeah. did move to the condos, yeah. you know, in, yeah, in, the house is just too much for them. It, but it was like a $230,000 condo or whatever. <laughs> and, um, but, but, but they kept that house because, um, they wanted to still be members of the country club. Like there were just things they were not willing to like, let go. And it was this whole idea that society, like they their culture, their society, was that country club, and well, at least the girls ended up getting jobs too. Yeah. Did everybody get a job? No. Uh, I think um, everybody did. Uh, yeah. Kitty got the jet job. What did Lydia end up doing? Oh, Lydia oh. ran off with Ham. Sorry. Yeah. So.
0: Lydia was making paleo food for Ham. I don't know that she got a job. She
3: didn't get okay, so but she got I'm a she got a husband.
0: Yeah. PG, were there were there moments? I know it's been a little while since you've read it, but were there moments um, of recognition for you of like certain family habits or pe- certain people?
1: So Curtis is always, I think, uh, sort of rightly and rightfully says, you know, like because everyone wants to say, is this autobiographical? Right. Is that autobiographical? And obviously, you know, everybody writes from life and right. from what you know. But she once made the good point of, you know, she is the voice and breathing life into every character in the book. So she's Mrs. Bennett and she's Lizzie and she's transgender ham and she's the reality TV show. Like she's, she's the lovable character. She's the bitchy character. She's everything. So, um, yeah, I mean, were there certainly flashes of recognition of saying, I hope when this family friend reads this, they're not like offended (laughs) (laughs) or feeling sensitive about it. I I did. And I say this, you know, like 80% jokingly. I think that Mr. and Mrs. Bennett in this book are not my father and my mother. They're my father split in half. And that's like my father <laughs> is both Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett in this book <laughs> in, in certain tendencies. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they're... But, I mean, these <laughs> not are all, the bad
3: warts. Not the yeah, bad all, the parts, all the good mom, parts, mom, da, <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Has he read very it? funny.
1: Uh, yeah, they've, they've read it and they loved it. And in fact, actually, one of the people who I, uh, you know, lives in Hyde Park and sort of is occupying this universe... I was like, are they gonna read this and be like, how dare Curtis Sittenfeld, like, you know, just pluck from the country club and this mm-hmm. and that? And they love the book. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah, but I mean, it's also it's so hard to know, like, when you create a character that's a composite, let's say it's, you know, 30% Abby, but 70% someone else, well, you're creating a totally new person. So, right. yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of it feels familiar. And in every book she's written, there's dialogue. That, you know, are things that we've been saying in our family for, you know, since I've been alive. So, but, you know, it's, it's you, you regenerate it. Mm-hmm.
0: I loved that minivan scene when the minivan rolls out to California to see Cousin Willie and Margo. Do you remember that? <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, Lizzie h- had thrown up on... Yeah, had she thrown up on Lydia or Kitty, and she said that she didn't think their their relationship had ever recovered. Maybe it was Mary. Yeah. She threw up on one of the sisters because she was really way into a romance oh, yeah. novel. Yeah, no, and
3: She didn't want to give up.
1: No first cousin has ever proposed to a Sittenfeld sister. Okay, all right, okay,
0: that's that. good. Yes.
3: <laughs> Well, I know what I loved was the, um, the 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 way Liz was deconstructed on reality TV. Oh, I thought that was priceless. How everybody got a category, and Liz who. Fancied herself the smart intellectual, like she's like the party animal because she's just banging back drinks all night. <laughs> right. and they kept the way they edited it and cut the whole show. She was the party girl, and I was like, "That is so awesome!" Like because we watch these things, um, not that I do. No, but no, no. <laughs> nobody does. Nobody watches. And you're like, well, "Is that really who those people are?" And I loved Mary's take on it. Like this is everything I thought it would be, and she's like, "I hate it."
0: <laughs> what, did you, what did you guys think of Mary of um, Curtis
3: ending the book with Mary? I loved it. You don't like that. Yeah, yeah. I think we, again,
1: (laughs) I apologize for being (laughs) rustier on on having, when I read it. I think it should have ended, you know, with the proposal and, you know, sort of tie a neat bow around it. And Curtis, I think this is her, you know, I mean, you all can speak to this better, but like, you know, being a writer, Mm -hmm. you want to do things your own Mm -hmm. way and sometimes take things in a weirder direction. So it's not how I would have ended the book, but there's a reason why I'm not, why I haven't written five novels. I like
2: that it wasn't all, she didn't end on, a pat note where she had a, a little bit more to say, so I I thought that was good rather than just end with the the, yeah. the wedding or whatever. It wasn't I love wedding
0: it. carriage going into the distance. I right? love that
2: Mary had a happy ending with a vibrator and
3: a bowl. <laughs> like like I just think that was. Perfect. Like she didn't need a man; she had all she needed, and she was happy with that. And it was just different strokes for different folks.
2: Like that's right. You need a husband, a job, jobs, or some electronics. electronics. Yes. And end up with One of the three. <laughs> one of at the three of the book. <laughs> Can't have it all. Pick two. You know.
1: The <laughs> one thing I did love is in the, the sort of you know I guess penultimate like you know reality TV show marriage scene of them walking down the aisle, but because it's a reality show, they're like, all right, we're going to need to do that again. Again. And you know, this, what should be magical, singular moment. And, I think do they have Bingley? Does Curtis have Bingley? You know, so they do the first take, and he's weeping as she walks in <laughs> the aisle. But then he's weeping on the second and third one too. It's, <laughs> so there's maybe it's an yes. indictment uh, on sort of the institution of marriage or the industry of marriage right. for the contemporary age now. You
3: know, all the show. Well, all, all the things
1: that were wrong right. with it then. Yeah. We've got our own stuff now. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. marriage industrial. The society
0: does not. Yeah, anyone yeah, no. in this room? <laughs> no, 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 no. No one no, no. in this room nobody has here. any concerns and about nobody their marriages in Cincinnati. It
3: was yeah. just <laughs> well. I actually. T- To to go back to what PG said a while ago about um, it's written for the 99% that aren't in Cincinnati. And what I love about it is um, you aren't lost in the Cincinnati stuff. It's a great background. We know it. We feel it. We love it. It feels great to finally read a book because I'm a New Yorker. I'm always seeing stuff in there. Um, To see Cincinnati alive in a Mm -hmm. book is awesome. But I feel like she talks about these characters in such a universal way. Like they don't have to be Hyde Park parents. They are the suburban parents, you know, in Connecticut mm-hmm. or in Virginia who are completely out of touch, yeah. want their kids married and she just created this world that was very universal, but she used a small little, you know, petri dish of Cincinnati to show that or magnify it. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I told all my sisters who are back east like you have to read this. Oh my gosh, because we're all Jane Austen freaks and They'll love it. And maybe it'll bring them to Cincinnati (laughs) because none of my family will ever come here. They don't think life exists beyond the Hudson. So, like, it's cool. Like, there's a lot of cool things that are mentioned here. Knowing Cincinnati
0: just adds an extra layer of enjoyment because Mm -hmm. even at the end, you know that Lizzie is set up to create her own life here apart from the life that she's lived as a child. And, PG, you probably have experienced this as, like, somebody who grew up here but now has, like, carved out... a, a. you know, in some ways linked life to your past and in some ways separate. Like I can know that Lizzie and Darcy are going to be happy living in Over the Rhine and then she's going to come to the War and Peace group at the Mercantile <laughs> Library and we're all going to be friends. <laughs> I mean, I can see her, I can see her, her path before her. So but I would love to how, be a party. How old
1: is Lizzie in Pride and Prejudice? Oh, 21. She's, 21. she's 21. So one thing oh that's I- interesting to me too is, you know, when when the next person rewrites Pride and Prejudice, yeah. it'll happen before then, but, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, if in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, you know, Lizzie and her mother are sweating marriage at 21. In this one, it's approaching 40. You know, marriage rates are plummeting across the country. So I wonder, you know, if they're, mm-hmm. if it would actually be totally unrealistic 25 years from now to have an overbearing mother being like, you got to get married, you got to get married, because it'll be as normal as not to right. be... Yeah. Or you have
3: mother saying, do not <laughs> or yeah, whatever you, you do. Right. Oh, that would be a do fun twist. Do not get write. married. You should I, write that I one. I kind <laughs> of hope... I, I have that conversation every day. With my <laughs> <hair>. <laughs> slow Too down, slow soon. down. My yeah, no, I think that you just see a totally different group of women um, and what they want, what they need. Um, so I just mm-hmm. think it's kind of exciting that she even ended with Mary, who was kind of like,
1: I don't need this. Yeah, right. I don't need this. And it's I like, like that
2: she, uh, the Jane character had the added layer oh, yes. of being, you know, going, through fertility treatments to have a child on her own yeah. because she's mm-hmm. approaching 40 and yeah. and doesn't want to put it off. So there's, it's not just the marriage. She modernizes it that way too. I thought that was a really nice extra layer.
3: But then they also had to go back and lie about it. Like for, I mean, it's so funny, like it's 2016, and yet there, are, I really do think there are still people out there who are like, we well, can't tell them the truth. Like, right. not mm-hmm. his I
0: loved, um, I think maybe it was on that Diane Rehm interview, Curtis said that she had talked to a producer, a former producer of one of those reality shows, oh, yes. and got a lot yeah. of tips, and I thought yeah. the whole section of what they, what they were willing to fake and what they were willing to um, splice together on the reality show, I thought that was really, really well done. You could oh, tell yeah. that she had some kind of what was it yes, called?
3: Frankenbite. Rankin- Frankenbite yeah. yeah. was that well,
1: what it was? Well, and, and I think she said that you know she could have gotten this sort of enough knowledge about reality TV shows from watching like an episode or two of The Bachelor, <laughs> and it turned into watching every episode for two seasons. <laughs> so, and I've been, I, I, I feel a little bit like uh, Mrs. Bennett, who's like sits in the living room with her daughters, <laughs> saying, "No, I'm not watching that TV show," even <laughs> though she's hearing everything. That's how I feel with my fiance Sarah. She watches The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, and I'll be like on my computer working. And then I'll, you know, the next day be like, I can't believe this happened. But I don't watch the show. I don't, right, watch, right. The show. <laughs> don't watch it. We don't watch it. We don't watch it. Yeah, They're no, very addictive, you. which I yes. do think it was. It was a clever frame for a yes. lot. Yes. So many the number clever. Number of times my husband
2: has walked in and stood there in front of the TV. Why are you watching that stupid show? And then remains there for the, right, minutes, right, right. For the next 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> like you cannot I really look can't away. believe you, <laughs> Alyssa.
3: You cannot look away. It was. Uh, it is. It was. I mean, it's amazing how well she pulled that off. Well, do any of part. you have questions that you would like to ask Curtis if you have a chance? I just would love to understand her pro- process. You told me already. You told us how she broke it down. I just can't wrap my brain around it as a writer, like how you would do it. I I would be so terrified of the pressure. Like I don't know how I could ever jump over. And that living up to that the pressure of criticism, how does Curtis handle criticism? Like we I thought she got only good reviews, and then I just heard she didn't get a so great review.
0: And so she's gotten a lot of positive reviews, but that we were talking before the podcast about one negative review. Yeah. And
1: And there were there were more than one. So two, two things. One, I think Curtis, and I've heard her say this. Like, the best thing in, in you can get is a uh, prominent, glowing review in the New York Times. The second best thing you can get is a scathing, brutal, prominent review in the New York Times. Like, <laughs> I think she just feels so like true. it's so arbitrary and at the whim yes. of a particular reviewer, mm-hmm. as, as you guys both know well. Um, but what you really want is for people to be aware of the books book. Book, so exactly. They, they go right. buy it. The, the one other thing I know she's obsessed with is structure. Like I think she thinks it's you know like the the backbone and the spine of writing a novel, and I've heard her say to other people, she feels like anybody can write the first half of a good novel, but what sort of separates is, is you know have you gotten yourself into a place that you can't write yourself out of? So she's and she literally like taking the note cards and mapping it out and diagrams and this and that. And then you know, bringing the characters to life within that, but having a framework, you know, you can sort of execute.
3: So yeah, I just thought that was it was just masterful. So I'd love to hear her process. Like, what do you? How do you? Like, literally down to to like, what do you put on your desk? Where where do you work? Like, (laughs) can can I see a picture of your your desk? desk? (laughs) Well, kind of. It's kind of a step by step how to. But just like, what is her process to sit down? Does she read a chapter of Jane and then write, or does she watch a, a Bachelor and then write? Does she go for a walk? I just I'm curious because I have been thinking about doing a modern War and Peace because there's like the breakdown of the war. The, yeah. like, all, there's just so much cool stuff. And bring War and Peace to Cincinnati, how cool would that be? But mm-hmm. I'd have to probably find another city because Curtis killed it with this <laughs> one. Yeah. Like, she did it. She did you could do West job. Side. Well, yeah, West. exactly. I've never yeah. been to the West Side. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I went there yeah. once. Um, but I just think that, I just don't know how she did it. It's just unbelievable. I just keep, I kept going over and I'm like, I read and prejudice, I didn't know how Jane Austen did it. So now somebody came out and was like, "Did it two hundred years ago?" Well, and
0: Alyssa, you wrote a profile of of Curtis for this month's Cincinnati magazine. Uh, it wasn't a right? profile of oh. her. It
2: was a it was yeah. a, a short piece just a, about the book, um, and not a book review, but just okay. about the book and her writing of it. And okay. I did get a chance to speak with her about that, which was really fun. Um, and so it. <laughs> and <laughs> too. Um, so yeah, it was she. Uh, one of the things she told me, and she may have said this on Diane Reem as well, is that she outlined very thoroughly um, her like she rewrote each chapter as a little outline, just chapter by chapter, and then tried to figure out if I deviate from the original here, that's going to affect all of this here. Yeah. So she you can't she said she couldn't just do a chapter by chapter right. update, um, and I found that really interesting. That often writing a book isn't necessarily just the typing of sentences onto the page it is like you were saying pg it's mapping it's arra- rearranging the cards it's like all of that is writing a book too and that's that was kind of eye-opening for
1: yeah, me yeah i think there, there's probably some like romanticized yes. sense that you know any beautifully conceived book should be just a tour de force that flows from you and like these like right. organic sessions and She's I don't know she's not the opposite of that but she's like incredibly meticulous where right you don't usually think about creating literature by like mapping stuff out on a bulletin board as though you're like you know planning a military right. campaign but that's a lot of what it is for her. But yeah. it's also
0: like it's um doesn't it take some of the um some of the intimidation out of any large task to start breaking it down. Yeah, totally. Really like mm-hmm. that process of actually breaking Jane Austen's work down into an outline had to be helpful I would think. The thing that I think would be challenge after the outline too would be to come back and have it feel fresh and funny. You know, it, it really does. The dialogue is so crisp and mm-hmm. um, clear clear and clean, I think is what mm-hmm. Sarah Lyle called it. And, um, you know, so I think that's, it doesn't, the, her, you don't see like the marks of her outline all over this. Right.
2: And that's something, she didn't say this in our interview, but um, uh, it's something that I imagine is a big part of writing any novel is having to revisit the same material over and over and over again so that every every layer maybe adds, maybe the dialogue tweaks in the next layer, maybe that character sharpens up the next layer. Just being able to sit with the same material for two years maybe from conception to mm-hmm. publication, that's a I mean it's a it's it's a long road.
0: Well it it was a, a long and productive and beautiful road I think. And I can't wait
3: to yeah. hear her I her can't speak either, here either.
0: here at the library. No.
3: Um, I got to interview her after prep. Oh, really? When I was at Writer's Digest, well, freelancing for them. It was several several years ago. And I remember, because Colin was my son who's 10, is, was in diapers. Because I remember being on the phone with Curtis and watching <laughs> him run. But, yeah. yeah, so it's been a long time. Has prep been 10 years? Yes. I think it's uh,
1: been more, actually, probably, yeah. yeah. I think probably it was been. like my freshman or sophomore year of college. So,
2: yeah, it's probably more than that.
1: I think it's been maybe, yeah. Uh, 12 or 13 years, yeah. actually.
2: Wow. That would be a question. I don't know if we have a second, but that would be a question I would love to ask her is as a, a mother and a writer who works from home, just like the blueprint, what is the day-to-day management and balance look like for her? How do you, That's like how I many days know. are you like sitting at your desk? Like how do you manage all the chess pieces you have to move around <laughs> in a typical breakfast? day?
1: <laughs> <She>, Curtis, cur- <laughs> I think this is very like unsittenfeldian actually, but... She's, I think, if, if she was a, like, saw one person socially, like once a week, that'd be like enough for her. Oh. But she actually just wrote a piece, it might have been for Vogue or something, about sort of about work life balance. Um, but I thought this was interesting, and to me, it makes her you know, such a weirdo. But she said that whenever she's asked to do anything, whether it's like, hey, do you want to get drinks, or hey, can you blurb my book? Her default response is no. Like she just always says, I'm going to say no. So then like it has, something has to earn its way to the yes category where I find myself all the time. I say yes to everything. (laughs) And then I go to some function. I'm like, why did I say yes to this three months ago? (laughs) So there's probably some wisdom to it. But I mean, I think little tips like that, especially again, you all sort of are living this as, as writers, but I mean, you know, time is the most precious thing, and mm-hmm. there's so many things that can pull you away from it. So. Right.
0: Yeah. So do you, li- you want to have friends? Yeah, so <laughs> do you, you want to be a writer or do you want to have a life? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I loved it. I listened to her on uh, Ask Me Another, and she said, for a normal person, I'm weird. For a writer, I'm normal.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I well, love right? that. I, yeah, I, think I, I, it I love it. I love everything about
3: it. I love it. For a Sittenfeld,
0: <laughs> is she normal or for a Sittenfeld, is she weird?
1: Well, we're all weird, but in different ways. She's a little weirder, yeah. yeah. I think she's a little bit more more like, I mean, there's a reason she's the the fiction writer. Yeah. Did
3: you have a sense that she was a writer when she was little? Oh like, yeah, like I mean, was Curtis everybody was writing, writing like, yeah. short
1: stories when she was in fourth grade. Mm. She, you know, was like writing Washington Post op eds when she was in high school, and it's it's good for her, and I think Curtis would acknowledge this too. She was really bad at math. She was really bad at French. So this has been like it's. I've always said, Curtis, you're very lucky that you're a good writer because other avenues were not. You know, the right. world wasn't. She could have gotten
3: them. into CrossFit. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is
3: she really into CrossFit? Okay. Or? No, no, <laughs> no. Not, not at all. I, I was gonna say like. I, I love them. all that yeah, description because those it. are the most annoying people: marathoners <laughs> and CrossFit people, and paleo and diet and people. Food oh. people. Oh. Curtis is oh. a
1: moderate walker who likes skyline chili. So.
0: Oh God, we need to be friends. We'd be best friends. I know.
3: No, Curtis. We don't like people. We like to walk. We like to (laughs) run. I mean, I can't speak for her. She doesn't like people. But I don't like people. I like to be alone. (laughs) Well,
0: I'm sure I'll see you all here soon um, at our at our Curtis Sittenfeld event coming soon. Thank you for joining us today on the Twelfth Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile, L-I-B. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Alyssa Brandt, Mary Curran Hackett, P.G. Sittenfeld, I'm Abby Moran. The 12th, the 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com, where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.